Thank you for listening to this Waterstone message. Here at Waterstone, our mission is to advance God's kingdom to God's glory. Our current series is called Power and Weakness, a study in 2 Corinthians, where we look at how we experience Jesus' power and grace in our weakness. We hope this message encourages and challenges you, and we would love to see you at one of our services at 5.30 on Saturday evenings or 9 and 10.30 on Sunday morning. A reading from the book of 2 Corinthians. Now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are an aroma that brings death. To the other, an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. The word of the Lord. We are continuing on in the series in 2 Corinthians. Last week, Larry kicked off the series, and we're going to be diving in uh, today and looking at chapter 2 uh, in our second week. But before we jump in, I, I want to ask you, Justin asked you earlier, what was your first job? Um, can anyone remember? And if you do, can you just shout out what your first job was? Bus boy, okay. Bus boy, okay. Two bus boys. I was a bus boy. What, what are some other ones? We've got to have more than... Dog walking, nice. What was the one over here? Babysitter? Janitor, nice. All right. Picked up rocks. I want to hear more about that one, actually. <laughs> yeah, so I was a busboy and a dish boy at an all-you-can-eat barbecue restaurant, which means I was cleaning up really messy dishes and really messy tables, and I got paid the handsome sum of five fifteen an hour to do it. It was like 10 cents above minimum wage, so I was feeling pretty good about myself with that. Uh, but it, was a, it was a lot of hard work cleaning up all these tables, but harder than the work was actually the working environment that I was in. Uh, so... My managers at this restaurant, it was called Spring Creek Barbecue. If, if you've ever been to Texas or Dallas, great barbecue. But um, managers at this restaurant, uh, there were two ex-convicts uh, who had been in federal prison and who were like on this work release program. And so as a 14-year-old Christian kid, it was, a, it was a little bit of an eye-opening experience, I'll say the least, a little rough around the edges. Uh, and beyond that, most of my coworkers were high schoolers too, but they were a little older than me. And there was this whole like drinking, partying, hookup culture. So after work, people would go out and, and drink together, sleep together, do whatever. So as a new believer, 14 years old, it was kind of hard to navigate some of those situations. But what made it even more difficult was working on Sunday afternoons with them. Because they knew I was a Christian, and I would come from church to work on a Sunday afternoon. But all the other Christians who had been at church would come with me. And if you ever have worked in a restaurant before, you know that working Sundays when everyone gets out of church is the worst. Because Christians can be really rude, 
and they tip really poorly. In fact, I remember one time, I don't think I'll ever forget it, but there was this guy clearly dressed in a Sunday best, his whole family with him, little kids and everything, clearly coming from church that I know they were Christians because they prayed later before their meal. And uh, as he goes through the line with this big plate of all-you-can-eat food, he starts yelling at our manager because they don't have the right beer on tap. And he's just chewing him out. And I remember interacting with my coworkers who knew I was a believer and on Sundays, they would just kind of be giving me the side eye like, what? These are, these are Christians? And I remember one conversation with a guy named Big A. His, his actual name was Austin, but he was a big old Texas boy. And he was talking to me after one particularly rough Sunday afternoon. And he said, Paul, you have got to talk to your people. They suck. They're the worst. <laughs> I hate it. Like you had, and I was like, I don't know all of these people. Like I do know, I'll be, I do know a few of them. They go to church with me, but I don't know all of them. Um, but it was just this constant atmosphere of Christians showing up and being mean. And the truth is, Christians can be really mean sometimes. And maybe you're here today and you don't even believe in Jesus and you're kind of interested or curious about Jesus, but every interaction you seemingly have with Christians is like, they are the most loud, obnoxious, rude people. They're the people on Facebook who are the sheriffs who are policing everyone and trying to tell them that they're going where and, and what they're doing is wrong and what they believe is wrong. Like, I just don't, you can have them. They're like, they suck, as Big A said, right? Like, Christians can be really really mean at times. And in fact, I, I would go so far as to say not only can Christians be really mean, but sometimes they can be downright hateful. I remember in college, I went to a, a small Christian university in a small college town. And the next town over had a big state school. And so on weekends, there was nothing to do in our town except get into trouble by like breaking things. So we would go to the big town and, uh, and there was a lot of good restaurants and bars and restaurants and it was, it was a great place to hang out. But when we would go to this street, it was called Dixon Street, and we would hang out there, there was always a group of Christians on one corner who would fly signs that says, God hates you or you're going to hell. And they would stand there and they would shout at people who were going into these bars and going into these clubs and try to convict them of the sinful life that they were living. And they would be so filled with hate, the way they would get in people's faces. I mean, they'd make comments about the way women were dressing. They'd try to pick fights with guys. In fact, one time a guy approached me, got in my face, and started yelling at me that I was going to hell. And I said, whoa, time out. I actually go to a small Christian school. I'm studying to be a pastor. I believe in Jesus. Why are you yelling at me? Like, what? why? And he says, well, what are you doing down here then? Why are you on this street? Why are you on Dixon Street? And I was like, what are you doing on Dixon Street? Like, you're here too. Why are you yelling at me about it? Like, we're both here. And he was kind of caught off guard and he pauses for a moment and then he, well, I'm here to share the love of Jesus with people. I don't know what you're here for. It's like, share the love of Jesus with people with signs like that? Like, we have a very different understanding of the love of Jesus. Christians can be hateful. They can be mean-spirited. And, and I think oftentimes when Christians are mean, it's because they've forgotten the gospel. And, and I think the challenge for us is that we can hear that and be like, oh man, well, I'm not a mean Christian. I don't fly signs that say people are going to hell or God hates them. Like, I don't treat people that way. But, but what about your waitress on a Sunday afternoon who gets her order wrong and doesn't smile enough while she takes your order and it doesn't come to the table as often as you would like? How do you treat that person? Because the truth is, all of us, we have, as ashamed as it makes us, we have moments in our lives where we have been mean Christians. 
And to be honest, I don't think it's just Christians. I don't know if you've noticed, but it seems like some of the, the dialogue in our country, some of the way that we treat each other, seems like the, the meanness just keeps escalating. We're just filled with hatred and vitriol, and we call people out who are on the other side, and we, we say whatever we want. Like, I don't know about you, but Twitter is, I think, the worst place in the world. Like, if you're on Twitter and you see the way people treat each other, it's terrible. And I think Christians engage in that because we've forgotten the gospel. And I think the gospel is actually the remedy and the answer to all that meanness and hatred. And what we're looking at today is a call to stop being mean Christians and to reaffirm our commitment to the gospel. But I got to pause because my fear is that when you hear me say, I'm going to talk about mean Christians today, you immediately start thinking of the person you know who's a mean Christian. And you do this number. You say, oh, my goodness, God, I thank you so much for podcast technology because my sister who lives in Chicago, she is a mean Christian. And she's going to need to hear this message. And I'm going to share it with her. I will send it to her as soon as we're done today. Or some of you, as you were walking in and when I'm talking about mean Christians, you start looking around the room like, okay. Okay, cool. Doug is here. Lord, you needed, he needed to be here today. You knew I, what he said in small group last night was so mean. So God, just thank you. We, we'll, it'll be good for him, right? Some of you, are, you're just nudging your spouse and saying like, do you want to listen to this? Because you need to, right? We immediately start thinking about the other people in our lives who fit the description that I'm talking about. But the problem is anytime we come to scripture, Anytime we come to the Bible, to the gospel, and we start scrutinizing other people before we scrutinize ourselves, we are mishandling God's word. And so what I'm asking you to do today is look inward before you look outward. Whether or not you think you're a mean Christian, whether or not you've ever flown a sign that tells people they're going to hell, however you think you may or may not treat people, I am asking you to open yourself up to, to put your meanness into the light and ask God to speak to it and see what he has to say to you about how you treat people. And we have to look inward before we look outward. So are you willing to do that with me today? Cool, nope, all right, that's great. <laughs> no response, this will go fantastic. Before we, uh, I'm kidding, I know you guys were, you were affirming in your hearts, I know. Uh, let, me, let me pray for us and then we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, uh, God, I, I come before you, um, Lord, I, I am inadequate to, to preach this message. Um, so God, I pray that your words um, would be my words today, that your truth um, would be the truth that comes from me. I pray that you would open all of our hearts, that we would be uh, convicted for the ways that we treat people, for the ways that we interact with them. Um, God, that, that we would return to remembering the, the truth and beauty of your gospel. And I pray that that would be... Um, the, the, the life that we live and that we would reflect the beauty and love of Christ to those we interact with as we become more like your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray, amen. All right, so 2 Corinthians, we are calling this study The Power and Weakness. And uh, I stole this from a video by the Bible Project. If you, We talk about them all the time. They have great videos explaining uh, scripture. But rather than showing you the whole thing, I wanted to just walk you through the context for this book for 2 Corinthians. I felt very proud of myself. I'm not good at technology, but I took a screenshot of the video and cut it into a slide. So good job me. I'm very, very pleased with it. But uh, <laughs> as you can see, Paul, he goes to Corinth and he plants a church. 
And he's interacting with these people. He's preaching the gospel. And we actually think Paul spent the most time with the church of Corinth than any other church that he planted, probably somewhere between 18 months to two years. And he preaches the gospel. This church is planted. They're growing. He leaves to go plant other places. And then, uh uh-oh, he gets a response and starts hearing reports that they're starting to fall away that they're, st- they're starting to believe a different version of the gospel. And there's these other people who are coming and preaching and trying to tell him, the, these people, that you're believing something wrong. Paul is, Paul is wrong. Believe our gospel. And so he gets worried about this, so he writes a letter to them, which is the book we know as 1 Corinthians. And in there, he starts calling them on all of the different ways that they've started to fall away and tries to call them back to the truth. He spoke to them and the truth of the gospel. And it does not go well. They hate the letter. They become even more angry at him. They become even more antagonistic to him. In fact, all of their kind of judgment around Paul is is based on the fact that he's poor. He earns a meager living. He's not an impressive speaker. And frankly, he just suffers too much. So how could God be on his side? And so all these people who come in who are impressive for them, who make a living from the gospel and who aren't suffering as much, they think those are the people we should follow. And so, I mean, it doesn't sound like Christians at all, right? But so 1 Corinthians, he writes this letter, and it doesn't go well, so he decides he's going to visit them, and he refers to it as the painful visit because it, it doesn't go well again, and they reject him even further, and he leaves broken and feeling like a failure, and it says that he's actually at the point where he is devoid of a desire for life. I mean, he's depressed. He feels like a failure, like he's lost. And so he writes one more letter, the, the letter that we're looking at in 2 Corinthians. And, and he says in this letter that he's trying to bring them back and rectify all of this drama and all of this stuff that's been going on and, and try to call them back. And, and they're, they're responding and believing again. And so this letter is bringing them back to reconciliation. And it says in chapter 2, verse 14, But thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. Now, I just kind of laid out for you some of the context of how Paul has been interacting with these very mean Christians, to be frank. And this is what he says. But thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. What is Paul talking about? What is this triumphal procession of Christ? Well, it's an image that would have been really common in the ancient world. It was the idea of when an emperor or a general or a king went out to war and conquered their enemies, they would bring the captives back, they would come to the city that sent them out, and they would march through it, and they would have this parade of of triumph that they would celebrate their victory. You can kind of think we do it today. Like, it's like a Super Bowl parade. Some of you remember when the Broncos won a, a Super Bowl just a few years ago. Maybe it feels like a long time ago to some of you, but it was just fairly recent. They won. And, uh, and there was this huge parade, right? A million people from Denver came out for this parade to celebrate the victory. Kudos to Denver. Also, only one arrest. Pretty amazing with a million people. Well done, uh, Denver. But, but it's a celebration of this victory. That's the idea behind the triumphal procession. Christ is leading this victorious parade. He is this general or conquering emperor. And he says he uses us to spread the aroma of him everywhere. Well, what's the idea behind this this aroma? What does that mean? Well, as this processional would be happening, this parade, it wasn't just the, the sight of the victory that would happen. The priests would come along, and they would be waving around incense and other things that would give off a fragrant aroma. 
And so as people are celebrating this parade, even if you couldn't see the parade, you could smell the victory in the air. And it was a reminder that you were victorious. It was a reminder, another way to symbolize the victory of your king or your general. And if you're a little uncomfortable by that illustration of Jesus, a conquering warlord who brings captives into a city, and you're like, wait, I thought Jesus was supposed to be kind of loving and kind, and, and like we talked a lot about loving your enemies, not conquering them, this feels a little weird. You're actually in good company, because Paul says that's a lot of people's response to this procession and this aroma. He goes on in verse 15, and he says, for we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. But to the one, they are an aroma that brings death, and to the other, an aroma that brings life. You see, what he's saying is that as this this parade takes place and as Christ leads this victory march, if you're on the side that wins, this fragrance and this procession is a reminder of your victory. But if you are one who's been defeated, who's a captive, it's a reminder of your defeat. And it's a reminder that you lost, that your side lost, and that the other side won. And so it smells like the fragrance of death. And what's so interesting is is that it's really painting this picture that this fragrant aroma, to some, is an offensive aroma. It's an aroma that causes a really stark and strong reaction in them. When you came in today, you were handed a, uh, a tea bag of uh, pumpkin spice. Did everybody get one, or at least one for the family that you can share? Can you take that out if you got it today? Um, and I want you to go ahead and open it up. And I want you to take just a big whiff of the sweetness of pumpkin spice. That smell. All right, so as you smell that, that fragrance of pumpkin spice, for some of you, if you're like me and you love fall, this aroma brings up the idea of the beauty of fall, right? Like you start thinking about leaves changing. Maybe it conjures up images of Halloween and Thanksgiving. Maybe it conjures up images of carving pumpkins and playing football or chunking pumpkins. Like it's this amazing aroma that smells like the fragrance of life because you love fall. If, however, you are like my wife, this smells like the fragrance of the death of summer, right? (laughs) This smells like the fragrance of shorter days, dark when you go to work in the morning, dark when you come home, no more pool time, no more vacation, back to school, right? Like it smells like the death of summer. It's the exact same fragrance because it's two very different reactions, Two very different reactions. And Paul is saying it's the same with the gospel. That when some of us smell the gospel, it smells like the fragrance of life and victory. And when some smell it, it smells like defeat and death. But what we cannot miss, but what I think we often do miss, is that it is the fragrance of Christ's victory that is offensive. Not the people spreading around the aroma. See, I think so many times we come to passages like this that talk about Christ's victory and his triumph, and we begin to think, oh, I am so glad I'm on the winning side. And we begin to tell people that they're the ones who are defeated. You see, we hear that the gospel is an offense to people, and we use it as an excuse to be offensive. 
and we say that, you know what, I'm just preaching the truth. And if they don't like the truth and they get upset by the truth, then that just means it's working. And the truth is that, that while Christ's triumphant victory does feel like an offense to us, it is the aroma of the victory, not the people who spread it around, that it is the offense. The gospel is not an excuse to be offensive. And what we so often do with the gospel is we come to it and we say, I'm on the winning side and you are the one who's losing. And we take what is supposed to be a victory march and we emphasize the defeat of our enemies. Some of you all, I can see your jerseys, your, your Broncos fans. Any, any Broncos fans in the room? Okay, not as many as first service, but a few, all right. Most of you know, I've talked about it before, but I am a diehard Cowboys fan, um, which for, wow! Wait, was that a boo or a cheer? cheer. Boo? Okay, I'm getting a thumbs down and a cheer. All right, I'll take the cheer. All right, so you, most of you know that I'm, a, I'm a, a Cowboys fan and you hate me for it and you're like, I just stopped talking about the stupid Cowboys. Like, don't even talk about football. I just hate all of it. But Broncos, let's just pretend for a moment that Broncos and Cowboys, they meet in the Super Bowl this year, all right? Now, I know it's really hard to imagine that because there's no way that Joe Flacco and the Broncos are making it to the Super Bowl this year. Like, I'll just be honest, it's not gonna happen, okay? Like, is it, and you're offended by that, but it's the truth, okay? So I'm just letting the truth speak, right? Okay, so let's say that the, the Broncos and the Cowboys play in the Super Bowl this year. And I don't know, let's just, for the sake of argument, say the Cowboys win the Super Bowl this year, right? Okay, yeah, some of you are booing, that's fine. I'm still getting the thumbs down, that's okay. But let's say that the Cowboys win. I'm ecstatic, right? This Cowboys win, it's amazing. Now let's say though, that only as Dallas fans would, they decide that instead of doing the Super Bowl parade in Dallas, they're all gonna come to Denver and throw the Super Bowl parade in your city. How would that strike you, right? Like probably you're offended at me just talking about the Cowboys winning, much less thinking about a million Cowboys coming to Denver to celebrate the Cowboys winning the Super Bowl, right? And yet, the, the, the whole point of that is that the emphasis becomes not on celebrating our victory as Cowboys fans, but emphasizing the defeat of the Broncos. And so many times with the gospel, that is what we do. I hate to say it, but I think Christians are far more passionate far too often about denouncing sin and calling out the sin they see in non-believers than they are calling them to the beauty of the cross and the victory of Jesus. We have flipped it upside down. And Paul says that the whole point of this is that, that Christ has won the victory. It's his. And we're to celebrate that, and it's a triumphant procession, but we don't emphasize the defeat of others. There's no need to be offensive with the truth of the gospel. And, and, and I think when we forget that, we become mean Christians who are emphasizing our victory and the defeat of our enemies, because that feels really good sometimes. I win, you lose. And Christ has called us to something more than that. And the truth is that I think, I, I'll give us a little, a little grace and a little credit. I don't think most of us are, are mean Christians. And, and in fact, the times that I think we are mean, it's not because we're bad people, but it's because we're forgetful. And if you're a non-believer and you're like, okay, he's just gonna let them all off the hook of all the terrible things they did, that's not what I'm trying to do. But I do think that there's a genuine element of this where we forget the gospel and become mean because we have forgotten where we are in the processional. 
What Paul says is that thanks be to God who leads us as captives in Christ's triumphant processional. As captives. See, I think we come to this triumphant procession and we want to be soldiers in God's army. We want to fight the fight and defend the faith and defend Jesus and people attack us and ridicule us and call us all sorts of names and tell us that we're bigots for what we believe and we think we have to fight back and defend the truth because we are soldiers for God. But Paul says in this image that we are captives, which means two things. One, we had nothing to do with the victory. Christ has already won. And there's nothing we need to do to defend him. He is victorious on his own merit and what he did on the cross. We have forgotten whose parade we are in. And it is Jesus, not us, who is the victor. And beyond that, if we are captives, that means we were once enemies of God. If we were captives, we were enemies. We were against God. And it is only, only because of his love and his grace and his conquering of us and us surrendering to him that we are made his captives. You see, we forget that we were enemies of God. And so we forget that the people we interact with, the people that we treat, we think we can call them enemies because we're the ones who have been saved. That we can treat them poorly. We have to defend the truth. I mean, we're, we're in a society that's more and more secular and it can feel harder and harder to believe some of the things that we believe. So we have to fight back. But the crazy thing about this triumphant procession is, is Christ is the only king and emperor in history who conquered not through killing his enemies, but through laying down his life. And he has called us to do the same, to lay down our lives for our enemies, to treat them even in ways that they don't deserve to be treated because we have been treated with love in ways we don't deserve to be treated. I was really convicted about that this week because I, I messed this up royally. A couple weeks ago, um, our car, it was breaking down. We just got a little maintenance done on it. And, and when we got it back from the mechanic, they forgot to put the, uh, the cap on the radiator. And it killed our car. My wife was stuck on the side of the, the highway for four hours. I was mad. I called the mechanic and said, hey, you did this. You need to fix it. He's like, I'm, I'm really sorry, man. That is our mistake. This is what happened. He explains it. And he says, I, I'm sorry. Mistakes happen sometimes. I did not like that. That is not what I wanted to hear. And so I let him know that. Mistakes happen? Uh-uh. Not this is ridiculous. You're wrong. And it's amazing how many times I've shared this story and how many people have said, you've got to find a new mechanic. You've got to go someplace else. Like, that's terrible. I was convicted this week because I, I, I was thinking about this passage and I began to ask myself, how would he react if he knew that I was a follower of Jesus? How would he react if he knew that I was a pastor? I treated him like he was an expendable person because he made a mistake on my car. And so many times when we interact with people, we treat them expendable because we think they're mean to us or they don't do the thing that we deserve. But but the gospel is that no one is expendable. It changes our view of people that it's not a mechanic who made this mistake, but a person created in the image of God who God desperately wants to find. 
And so I was convicted, and, and I, to be honest, I'm going to go back and get my car this week, and I'm going to apologize to him. And I'm going to say, look, you are right. Mistakes do happen. I make them all the time in my job. Like when I yell at mechanics for not doing theirs. And, and I'm going to apologize and say, the work you do is incredibly valuable. Thank you so much. You, for years, you have kept my crap car on the road. And one mistake, it, it happens. Because I want that relationship. Because it's not just someone who didn't do their job so I can, can dispense with them. They're a person created in the image of God that I am called to love no matter how they treat me, no matter how justified I feel that I am. And so the question for you and me is is not, and even necessarily are we mean to those we think we have to defend the faith against, how do we treat those who are lost? Because I think we forget that we were captives, we forget that we were enemies, but we forget what it means to be lost. We feel so comfortable putting people into boxes and saying, yep, those people, they're the ones going to hell, and I'm in the group that's going into heaven. We feel way too comfortable condemning people for their actions, for the behaviors, for the way we see them in the world. And there was a Pew Research um, poll that was done in, in the year 2000 that I think actually really clearly depicts this. It's almost, it's, honestly, it's kind of comical. But in this research, the, this poll, they found that 90% of the people they polled believed in heaven and hell. And 90% of the people they polled also believed that they were going to heaven. And 90% of the people also believed they knew someone who was going to hell. Now, I am a pastor and really terrible at math. I am not a statistician, but those numbers do not make any sense, right? We can't all be knowing that we're going there and all know people who are going there, right? It doesn't make sense. But it does show that we feel way too much freedom in condemning people and saying, yeah, those are the ones who are perishing. You see, I think when we come to this passage and Paul says in verse 15 and 16, he says that, that those who are perishing The aroma is the smell of death. And to those who are being saved, it is the aroma of life. We read perishing and saved as good and bad, saint and sinner, moral, immoral, righteous, evil. And we feel comfortable labeling people and putting them into categories and boxes. And we say, I'm on the right, you're on the wrong, and you're going to hell because of what you believe and think and do. But I'm good. And that is a mean way to look at people. That is a judgmental, condemning way to look at people. And we do that when we've forgotten the beauty of the gospel that we were once lost to. That the only reason that we are not perishing, that we are being saved is because of Christ's intervention in our life and that he found us while we were lost. See, we feel really comfortable using directional, or I'm sorry, destination language when Paul is using directional language. People who are on the way to salvation and people who are on the way to perishing, but that's not their final destination. It should fill us with an urgency to have conversations with people. Because that's one of the reasons why we love the Alpha course at Waterstone. It's because Alpha, it creates a safe space for people to talk about where they are in this journey, wherever they are, and and in a non-condemning way. Because we believe that the conversations are more effective for change than condemnation. 
And Alpha creates space for people to have those conversations without condemning people wherever they might be and whatever they might believe and whatever they may have done. We need to be people who see people on a process, on a journey, not as a destination. Because the truth is, the truth is that we were all lost. And so interesting, I heard this week that there was a, a church that's really effective at, at reaching lost people. Um, and in fact, so much so that, that they did a survey last year on Easter, big church, over, over seven or eight services. And in their services on Easter, they did a survey where they found out they had over a thousand atheists attend their services. A thousand atheists, incredible. May we be a church that that can be said of us. The second thing that was so interesting is the question after this, after they identified what they believed, is that of the 1,000 who said they were an atheist, the second question said, if God were real, would you want him to find you? And over 1,000 atheists said, yes. The lost are looking to be found, not condemned. And it is our job as the aroma of Christ to spread the knowledge of his victory, a pleasing aroma that attracts them to the truth of who Christ is and his victory and his reign. And then there is an offense in that. It is the call to lay down your life. It is the call to set aside your own desires, your own wishes, your own dreams, and to live for the king and the kingdom. It is a hard call, but it offends us just as much as it offends the non-believer. Because we think we have to fight and win and be victorious when the victory is Christ and Christ alone. And there's some of us in this room that, that I think we still think, honestly, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, but I just am not that mean. And that may be true. But could I ask you, when you hear a thousand atheists, people who don't believe in God, want to be found by him, does that fill you with any sense of urgency at all? Are we apathetic to those numbers? Are we apathetic to those people in our lives who do not know Jesus? Because that's a different form of meanness, and it might be worse, that we just don't even care. We don't even care to share the truth of Christ and his victory and his love and his grace and his compassion. Because the, the gospel is the story of a God who seeks out and saves the lost. A, a God who leaves the 99 to find the one. A God who seeks after those who are his enemies and conquers them by his death and his love and brings them to himself. That is the truth of the gospel. And that is the truth that he has called us to proclaim. And the hard thing is, is, is so many times we're not known for that. We're known for, for being condemning and calling people on their sin instead of pointing to the impressive, glorious victory of Jesus. I mentioned earlier Dixon Street and that group of Christians who uh, had those signs condemning people to, to hell and the way that they interacted with people. But there was another group that was down there most, most nights that uh, I spent time on Dixon Street. And it was this small, sm much smaller group, but it was this group of people led by a, a young college woman. And instead of signs that said, you're going to hell, or God hates you, they had uh, signs and t-shirts that just said, free prayer. And they just offered to pray with anyone and everyone, no matter what was going on, they, they just had prayer there available. 
And what struck me was that so many times when I saw them down there, the lines for prayer were longer than the lines for the bars. That people wanted to be prayed for, that they wanted their concerns and their cares to be lifted up to a God that they maybe didn't even believe in. See, it is my deep conviction and passion that we as Christians should be the most open, armed, loving, listening, compassionate, considerate, kind people on the face of the world. That our message should be a message of love and truth in Christ's triumph, of a king who died to save, and that his victory comes through defeat, not through defeating others. That is the truth that we are called to proclaim. And I fall short of it all the time, but it is what I aspire to. It's what Paul has called us to aspire to, that we are to be people who proclaim the beauty and grace and love of Jesus and that our demeanor and our tone and our social interactions should be the fragrance of the beauty and love of Jesus. And that as people interact with us, they are drawn to him, not offended and repelled. And some of you in this room, you have been a Christian for so long, you don't even remember what the fragrance is. You've forgotten that beautiful smell of Christ and his victory. You, you remember that moment when you first believed that you were overwhelmed with the beauty and love and grace of Jesus, that life that it brought you, that joy? Can we get back to that? Can we be recaptured by the love and grace of Jesus who died for us? instead of proclaiming the defeat of our enemies. And for some of you, you're, you're here today and you don't even know if you believe in God, but you know that you're lost and you're tired of being lost. And, and you were just hoping that God would maybe reach out and find you. And, and there have been moments in your life where you've maybe thought you would give your life to Christ, that, that you would surrender, and, and that fragrance was so hard it felt so overwhelming to say, God, I'm yours, that you haven't crossed that line. And I would invite you to do so today. We're going to take some time for all of us in this room, saint and sinner, because we are all of those things, to pray. And I'd like to give us just a moment to pray quietly to ourselves and to ask God to reveal to us the goodness of his grace and his triumph and his love and his mercy. And that if you, if you have known that for so long that you've forgotten what it even smells like, that God would recapture you with his love. And that if you have never smelled that fragrance as the fragrance of life, if it's always smelled like the death, then I would pray and give you just space to, to, to offer that prayer to God. And in a moment, I'm going to lead us through a prayer for all of us in the room, saint and sinner, to just, to just come before God and ask him, to heal us, to ask him to show up in our lives. So take a moment um, and pray, and then I'll pray a prayer over us. As I pray this prayer over you, you can either keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed and just uh, allow it to wash over you, or you're welcome to, to follow along on the screen and pray to yourself um, if these words are true for you. God of all saints, and God of all sinners, hear our prayer. We come before you needing healing. Healing of our pride and our fear and our apathy. 
While we wish to be holy, patient, and loving, too often we are full of failure, selfish, and mean. God, we confess that we forget people, the difficult ones, the needy ones, the ones that are hard to spend time with, the ones who confront us. We forget them because we have forgotten what it means to be lost. We have forgotten that we too were once your enemies. We've forgotten your great love for us and so have forgotten to love. We are in such desperate need of your forgiveness. We need to be forgiven of our sin, our selfishness, and for mistaking what the world values with what you value. But thanks be to God that you see us simply as human, lost but now found, flawed and yet trying, failing and yet succeeding. For your love is beyond measure, and you have chosen to include us in that love. Forgive us, heal us, that we may be freed to love and serve you more fully, to dream and to be, as Christ has called us. Amen.